You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. Well, happy Father's Day. That was a great gesture. Thanks, Christian and Sarah. That was well done. Well done. You know, what's, uh, as I was preparing the message for today, I thought, man, how fitting it is that we get to talk about Father Abraham on Father's Day. And my goal today, my goal at the end of the sermon is for you to see Abraham differently. My goal is for you to really appreciate Abraham being our father. That's my goal. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 14. The title of the sermon is Father Abraham meets Melchizedek. And these are probably two of the most important people in the Old Testament. And I think you'll see why at the end of this message. So I'll start by praying and then we'll get to it. Father, thank you, Lord, for all of these opportunities that we have to glorify you in the preaching and in the receiving of your word. Um, we know that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path, and we would be nothing without it. Um, wisdom comes through it, direction. All that we need for life and godliness we know comes through your word. We thank you for it, Lord, and above all, we honor you today as our Father, our Heavenly Father. Each of us, as we reflect on the time when we didn't know you, can certainly appreciate knowing you and seeing the difference, moving from darkness into light, and what a great life it is you've given us. You've just called us out of the pit of darkness and placed us into the kingdom of your dear son, where we can have life and have life in its fullness. Father, we commit this time to you, Lord, trusting that you'll do what only you can do and what's very necessary for us, and that's that you give us understanding, understanding of your word, in Jesus' name, amen. So this is not going to be a two-week series, this is going to be a Genesis chapter 14 day, and uh, there's enough information to put in two weeks, but we'll do it in one week. Genesis, the beginnings, right? The beginnings, and it certainly uh, reflects its name, Genesis. About a month ago, Patrick, Patrick started preaching um, about one of the, the genealogies being Abraham, and actually, it's listed not as Abraham's genealogy, but Terah, Abraham's father, uh, genealogy. And so, uh, today, I want to continue that. I want to continue that looking at one of the most important descendants, though, of Terah, and that is Abraham. The three major religions in the country, actually in the world, each has Abraham as a centerpiece in the religion. Catholicism, Christianity, and Islam. Each sees Abraham, uh, though the other two in a very imperfect way, but we get to see him in a perfect way. But that still speaks of the grandeur of this man, of what God has done to make Abraham known throughout all the world. I mean, after all, the Lord promised that he would be the father of many, many nations, not just the nation of uh, Israel. And so, as I stated, on Father's Day, we have the pleasure of examining um, the father of all believers, not just the father of the physical uh, Jewish people, but the father of the spiritual people, including all folks from all walks of life. 
Romans chapter 4 captures this. Romans chapter 4, verses 16 through 17. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, the Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, the father of many nations have I made you. So first things first, I want to try and harmonize where we've been so far with Abraham. I wasn't here last week when Patrick went through uh, the 13th chapter, and it's, it's been, you know, we've had some disconnect. Patrick was, was out of the country for a little bit. I did a two-week sermon, so I just want to harmonize what we're thinking or bringing us together with our thoughts about Abraham thus far. So right after the dispersion of mankind in chapter 11 at what's typically called the Tower of Babel, the Lord started to work through one family. And for the rest of Scripture, the, the focus of God is operating through this one family. So as Abraham is introduced to um, the word of Scripture, he is the person through whom the Lord will fulfill his purpose and speak his will um, to the world. Terah, Abraham's father, was born while Noah was still alive. So when you start to look at these genealogies, the numbers are very interesting because as you crack the numbers, you start to see when people lived, when people died, and who was still alive. So uh, Noah, uh, Terah would have been uh, Noah would have been 822 years old when Terah was born. So Terah had opportunity to interact with Noah. When Noah died, Terah was still a young uh, 150 years old, right? <laughs> young age, actually 128 years. Um, it, but now Abraham, when Abraham was born, Shem uh, would have still been alive. Shem would have been, Shem, Noah's son, he would have been 220 years old when Abraham was born. And so when Shem died, Abraham was 150 years old. In fact, Abraham died just 25 years after Shem died. So what's significant is they had opportunity to understand the antediluvian anti period, which is the time before the flood, and they had opportunity to discuss the flood as well. Now, there's obviously nothing in Scripture that shows what kind of communications took place, but it's very, very unlikely that something as significant as the flood was not orally passed on from generation to generation. So I would like to think that Abraham owned up the line, had an understanding of what took place in the flood and an understanding of what uh, took place afterwards. So that is a very significant piece that you always get from these genealogies. See, they're not just numbers on a page. They have significance. Think about what it would be like if you got to talk to Abraham about what he knew about the flood and then leave Abraham and go to Shem and talk to Shem about the flood. 
in life prior to the flood. In fact, think about being able to talk to Noah about what life was like seeing billions of people die in a flood. And he and his family are safe and secure in an ark, an ark that we read about, an ark that people build replicas to. Think about what it would be like. I would have to think that Abraham had uh, some knowledge of that. And even with that said, we are told about Abraham that he and his family worship idols. See, it's very, very hard for man to learn the lesson that should have been learned through the flood. Joshua 24, 2 says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. The only record that we have indicating that when God first spoke to Abraham, he was still in Ur of the, uh, of the Chaldeans, and the Lord gave him the promise, though limited, but definitely directed him to leave Ur and go to a place where he would, he would be shown. In other words, God knew where he was headed, but Abraham didn't. But we get the record actually from the New Testament where Luke records what Stephen said prior to his death, prior to him being stoned. Here's what Stephen says as he is giving a real stunning history about God's dealings with the Jews. And he said, hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to Father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come to the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him move to his country, to this country in which you are now living. And that's where the Jews were at the time. So Abraham leaves Ur, but he doesn't leave alone. Terah takes the family, and we find in Genesis 11 uh, this account of what took place. Terah took Abraham, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, with his son Abraham's wife, and they went out together from Ur, of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan, and they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So Abraham leaves, leaves with Terah, and they, they actually end up parking it. He took a respite for quite a while in Haran. There should be a map. I think there's a map that pops up. If you look at the map on the far right right above the Persian Gulf. By the way, when Patrick went over to UAE a few months ago, he was right below Ur, where Abraham was born. If you track Abraham's route, he, he, he leaves Ur of the Chaldeans all the way on the right side, and he goes up to Haran. That's roughly 600 miles. So they travel 600 miles, leaving Mesopotamia, but rather than dropping down to Canaan, he goes to Haran and he stays there. And the thought is that perhaps God rested him there until his father Terah died because Abraham needed to be apart from his family. 
Uh, if you go to the next map, it gives you a little bit larger view of it. That's kind of the trace of Abraham. So all in all, if you count the trip from Ur to Haran and from Haran to the land of Canaan, and then he went into Egypt and came back, all in all, that's roughly uh, 1,200 miles. So he did, some, he did some traveling. So all of this took place after the Lord appeared to Abraham and essentially tells him he needs to leave and he needs to go to the place where eventually the Lord would show him. Chapter 12 then. We looked at chapter 12, and that's where the Lord... By the way, we're going to get a nice dose of history today because it is history. It's God's history, very accurate. But in chapter 12 is where the Lord appears to him again. So this is a second encounter where the Lord essentially tells him the content of the promise. He's going to be the father of many nations. He's going to have a people, a land, and Abraham believed God, and the scripture says it was credited to him as righteousness. And then we see the bad side of Abraham. Right after the Lord gives him this promise, Abraham goes to Egypt because of the famine. He goes to Egypt, and going to Egypt is not necessarily a bad thing. It doesn't indicate that in the scriptures. However, What's bad is he gets there and he lies about his relationship with Sarah to Pharaoh. And of course, the Lord rescues them from what could have been a very awful situation. Then you come to chapter 13. Now you leave the shameful Abraham and you see the magnanimous work he does with Lot. He decides that he's going to give Lot the pick of the land. He deferred to Lot. Lot actually chose what was, um, by sight, the better part of the, of the territory, the more fertile part, and so Lot left and settled there. Now we come to chapter 14, and chapter 14 is where you're going to see another aspect of Abraham that just helps to paint the entire picture. So. I'm looking at the chapter in three sections, the kings, the battle, and the priest. So here, the first section, we're going to deal with the kings. So here we go. I'm going to read the first section. And it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Shinar Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedadolomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goem, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, and Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these came as allies to the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served uh, Kettle. You knew I'd do that, right? Kettle de Lo Lo Lomer. <laughs> But the 13th year, they rebelled. And the 14th year, Kedah de, de Laomer and the kings that were with him came and defeated Rephaim and Ashtaroth Karnaim and then Zuzim and Ham and Emim and Shiva Kiriathim and the Horites in their Mount Seir as far as El Paran which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mispat, 
that is Kadesh, and conquered all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who lived in Hazazon Tamar, and the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Admah, and the, you know the kings, right? Came out and they arrayed for battle <laughs> against them. I mean, why keep reading the kings? In the valley of Sidim against Cadalomer, uh, king of Elam, and the rest of them, four kings against five. <laughs> now, Moses is really detailed, isn't he? He just wrote it all. Now, the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. They also took Lot, Abraham's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. So in this section, you have listed four kings, and these four kings come from Mesopotamia. They are from the area where Abraham lived prior to the Lord moving him away. So it's a very pagan area, like most of the areas at that time. And so they probably took the same route that Abraham took in moving down to, uh, to defeat or make war with these kings. The first king, you're no, you notice the first kingdom was, was uh, Shinar. Shinar, interesting place. This is in Genesis 10.10 where Nimrod first began to build his kingdoms. Shinar is also the location where the Tower of Babel was being built. And then Shinar was also the place where the evil Babylonian empire was built. So nothing good comes out of Shinar. And these four kings are coming out of Shinar. The four kings traveled down to the valley of Sidim. Now, verse 2 describes their unworthy opponents. Five kings who lived in the valley, which more than likely were on the east side of the Dead Sea, down below the Dead Sea on the east side, these five kings. Now, the reason for the war is given in verses 4 and 5. They were paying tribute, right? This is like the old suzerain uh, vassal relationship where uh, a people conquered by another people become their servants, and they essentially has, have to pay tribute. Well, these kings decided we're not paying any more tribute. And usually that's what happens when people um, suffer under suppression. You know, eventually human nature rises up and they rebel. Well, this is exactly what happened with these five kings. They rebelled and on, in the 13th year decided we're not going to pay uh, any more taxes. So the five kings refused to pay. Instead, if you're not going to pay and war got you in the situation that you're in, then you might as well prepare for war, which is what they did. They prepared for what was going to be an imminent battle. Now, prior to arriving to the Valley of Sidim, just to give you an idea of the wickedness, the terror, the might of these four kings, Moses writes a little bit of a narrative of what took place as they were headed down to the Valley of Sidim. And there should be a map popping up in a second, so I'm going to read these verses, and the map kind of indicates their route in and their route out. In the 14th year, Kedalaomer and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Raphaim and Ashtaroth Karnaim and the Zuzim and Ham and the Eman and Sheva 
Karathim and the Horites and their Mount Seir, as far as El Paran, that's all the way at the bottom, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Enmispat, that is Kadesh, and conquered all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who lived in Hazazon Tamar. So this shows the military might of these kings. They're just sweeping away. Kind of like Sherman's march in the Civil War, they defeated six groups of people. Now, you probably couldn't call them nations at the time, but they were probably no small group. And they just washed through them as they came to, um, to fight the four kings in the Valley of Shaddim. And the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma, those kings, came out and they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Sedim. In verse 8, we have an account of the five kings getting ready for battle. Of course, it would be foolish, right, to decide not to pay taxes and to go to a war that you don't think you're going to win. They obviously thought that they were going to win, and perhaps they thought it was only going to be Keda Laomer, but he came with three other allies. But still, there's four kings against three. Um, so they readied themselves for battle. And then verse 10. Now the valley of Sedim was full, full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and the kings of Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country. So basically, they were fighting a losing battle. And they got whipped. They got routed, so much so that they fled the battlefield. And while fleeing, there's all these tar pits, right? Folks are falling into tar pits, and other people are bolting for the hills. They got routed. Verse 11 and 12 show, shows the spoils of war, goods, supply, even Lot that they left with. One writer wrote, archaeologist Nelson Glusick documented the destruction left by these kings. I found that every village in their path had been plundered and left in ruins, and the countryside was laid waste. The population had been wiped out or led away into captivity. For hundreds of years thereafter, the entire area was like an abandoned cemetery, hideously unkept, with all its monuments shattered and strewn in pieces on the ground. Candace, that was Leon Morris, by the way, since you want to know who I'm quoting. The, the scriptures just gloss right over and they just tell us what took place. But you all know what happens in war. And it was actually devastating. And then at the end of the verse, it's almost like Moses is writing and saying, and oh, by the way, Lot was living in Sodom. You can't be 100% certain, right? But given all that Lot endured, it's probably easy to think that him moving to Sodom was not a good move. In fact, I think you're going to see a contrast between Lot and Abraham throughout. And that's going to be a very important contrast that I'll address at the end. But he probably shouldn't have 
stayed there. However, this is where Abraham comes in. They took Lot. So that moves us to the battle. Verses 13 through 16. Then a fugitive came and told Abraham, the Hebrew, now he was living by the oaks of Mamre and the Amorite, brother of Eschol and brother Aner, and these were allies with Abraham. When Abraham heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against the night, I'm sorry, against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. It's not by chance, perhaps, that this fugitive escapes and goes to Abraham and tells Abraham, listen, your nephew has been captured. That's probably by divine providence, God's providence, right? So you have Father Abraham becoming General Abraham. He dons his military gear. He gets his servants, servants born in his own household. And, and of course, by now, Abraham is an incredible, uh, incredibly rich man by this time. And he has its own, his, his own army, if you will, but it's a very small army. But they're definitely well-trained. So he and 318 men, they set out to, to uh, conquer and to defeat what four what five other kings couldn't do. But this is Abraham, right? This is Father Abraham. And he, of course, is going by uh, in the might of God. He goes to battle. Verse 15 shows his military genius. It says he split his forces. Now, throughout history, and, and maybe history looked at this particular event, because that's thought of as being a very a daring and ingenious, tactful move to split your forces. Um, one of the ones I read about was General Robert E. Lee. General Robert E. Lee at Chancellorsville was way outnumbered, and he was fighting uh, Hooker, General Hooker, the Union general. And he did the very same thing. He split his forces and ended up defeating uh, General, general Hooker. Now, a lot has been said about Robert E. Lee and, and actually generals on the north and the south side of the Civil War, but by all accounts, there's, there's, there's evidence that uh, Lee was a Christian. Now, it wouldn't be far-fetched that he got his move from Abraham, but we can gloss over that, right, if you're not thinking militarily, but that shows you the wisdom of Abraham. This guy is the jack of many trades. And General Abraham goes in and he defeats these armies. Abraham routed four generals and their armies and he brought it all back. He brought back Lot, he brought back all the women, he brought back everything. It's hard to tell, right, how, how long or short the battles lasted, but he traveled hundreds of miles. Because when, when uh, no, Moses says near Damascus, Damascus is way north, uh, just below Haran. So um, easy, he traveled a couple hundred miles there and back, um, but he was victorious. And that brings us finally to the priest. And this is where 
it, it just gets nice and interesting. This is where it all comes together. Then after, the, after his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, some might say Melchizedek, but usually that C-H is a K, but either way it's okay. I prefer Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out the bread and wine. Now he was priest of the Most High God, of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all that he had. The king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear you would say, I made Abraham rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eskol, and Mamre. Let them take their share. This is victorious Abraham. He comes back and he meets two kings the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. Now, of course, most notable is the king of Salem. This is Melchizedek. Melchizedek introduced to the pages of scriptures for the first time. No one knows where he came from. He's introduced here. Nothing is mentioned about his family, and that's odd because this is the book of families, right? The book of genealogies. We don't know anything about Melchizedek, except what's written right here in these couple of verses. Essentially, he walks on the pages of Scripture in verse 18, and he walks off in verse 20, and that's it. The only other mention of, Ab of Melchizedek in the Old Testament was Psalm 10.4. I'm sorry, Psalms 110.4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And this verse, that particular verse is repeated in the New Testament by the writer of Hebrews, chapter 5 twice, and then once in chapter 6. And then when you get to chapter 7 of Hebrews, he explains it. He explains why this is it, why there's no history. And I'll read it for you, and then we'll talk about it uh, a little bit. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But made like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever, perpetually. So in Genesis, we're looking at this guy, and we don't get the explanation until we get to the book of Hebrews. 
And it's because the Lord constructed his life in Genesis because he would be the type of Christ's priesthood. So, you know, in scriptures, you have typology and then you have the anti-type. So a typology is something that is a shadow or that represents something spiritual or someone spiritual, right? Like when John the Baptist walks out and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What he essentially did was categorize all those lambs as types and the Lord Jesus as the antitype. Or just as a serpent was lifted up in the desert, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up that everyone who believes on him shall be saved. That serpent lifted up in the desert was a type of the Lord Jesus lifted up on the cross. So Melchizedek then, he is a type of Christ, namely the priesthood. Now I'm not going to get into it in details, but because there are a lot of stuff swarming around, like there are folks who, who, who believe he's Christ. There are those who believe he's Shem. Now he's a man. And it wasn't that he didn't have a father or a mother. It's talking about the record of Scripture. So when, when, when he says that he has no beginning, no end, it's relative to what's written in the Scriptures. He was born just like anyone else, but once again, the Lord constructed this so that in the end, he might be a type of the priesthood of Christ. And there's much that can be said about that, but that's totally another sermon. Now, just to give you a verse that talks about types, and then we'll move on. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath day, things which are mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so the shadow is just the type. It isn't it. And also, the thing about types, types are always, always inferior to the typology. There's no doubt but that Melchizedek is inferior to Christ. But very interesting about his priesthood. So he, Melchizedek, is the shadow, and Christ himself is the type, uh, the anti-type. Verse 3 presents the characteristics that would be true of the priesthood of Christ. No beginning, no end, no father. He has this perpetual priesthood. And although he is a type, he is still a bona fide priest. And that's interesting because what that tells you is even though Abraham and that line that eventually, well, obviously is the line of Christ, even though there are those who were worshiping other gods, you have this Melchizedek, and he's worshiping the true God. He is one on the side of truth, and he meets Abraham. Now, you, you, the, uh, the interesting thing about his name is that it means king of righteousness, and king of Salem means king of peace, because Salem is the old ancient name for Jerusalem, so he's king of peace. And as you start to just absorb this, you see all the beautiful connections to the Lord Jesus. And then you have him bringing out 
bread and wine. You know, that could be a, 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 a forerunner to the Lord's Supper itself. The, uh, there's one verse that talks about uh, Salem, and I wanted you to see that just to understand that Jerusalem has a long history. And even before it became Jerusalem, it was Salem, and God was still operating there through the person of Melchizedek. God is known in Judah. His name is great in Israel. His tabernacle is in Salem, which means peace. His dwelling place also in Zion. So he brings out the bread and wine, and you start to see, like I said, major connections. Melchizedek is described as the priest of the Most High God. Now, this is interesting for a Jew. You have to think Moses is reading this. Moses wrote it. He's reading it to Israel. He primarily wrote it uh, for the nation Israel, obviously. He's reading this, and then he comes across priest of the Most High God. Now, that would just lift the eyebrow of a Jew for a couple of reasons. One, it was forbidden for a priest to be king. There are a couple of folks who tried that. Uzziah tried it, died. Uh, Saul tried it, and we saw what happened to him. God kept those offices separate. The only way those offices come together is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here Moses is telling the Jews about a priest who is after the order of Christ, and he is king and priest. Priests of the Most High. All of the priests in Israel were priests of Jehovah, right? Jehovah, the God of Israel. Here he used El Elyon, which is God Most High, and it speaks of the universal God. In fact, that's how Melchizedek uh, describes him. He is the God of creation. So this is the guy who comes out to meet Abraham. And guess what he does? He blesses Abraham. And he blesses God most high. Bless. And the Hebrew, Barak, it means to, to speak well of. And actually, a, a better uh, description is the Greek word for, for, for bless or praise, eulageo, from which we get eulogy, right? And it means to speak well of. We know that. Well, he is praising Abraham. He's praising Abraham. He recognizes Abraham, obviously, as a man of God. Now, by the way, when God blesses us, he does us good. It's not that he speaks well of us, uh, but he does us good. So Abraham is victorious. Melchizedek recognizes his commendable actions. And I don't want you to lose sight of that, right? His commendable actions. And then the final three verses show the commendable actions of Abraham even more in that he refused to accept anything from the king of Sodom. And he had a right to, but he refused. In fact, he was very detailed. He's not going to take a thread or even a thong from a sandal, nothing at all, because he didn't want his, his riches attributed to the king of Sodom. He didn't want the king of Sodom to have this boast that he made Abraham rich. See, unlike Lot, Abraham refuses to have any pact with the king of Sodom. 
And in verse 24, he says what he will accept. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Askel, and Mamre. Let them take their share. He concluded that his men, it's okay, they have eaten. Long journey, they ate some of the spoils. Beside that, just what these men who have a right to have, just what they have. Now, that's a lot of history, right? And there's so much that can be said, but I want to leave you with a few thoughts. You can call the applications if you like, but these are a few thoughts that I want you to think about as you think about Father Abraham. Abraham lived a long time, and there's a lot of life there that you obviously couldn't capture in a book. So you rest assured that whatever is in the book is exactly what God wanted to show about Abraham. So we know that God wants us to know that Abraham was a person just like us. We saw in chapter 12, after meeting with God, we saw him sink to a low where he's lying about his relationship with his wife. And then we get to chapter 13, and guess what? Magnanimous act, very selfless, unlike the Abraham we saw in chapter 12. And then we get to chapter 14, and we see an incredibly selfless act. I guarantee you those men who went with Abraham probably welled up with pride and adoration where Abraham redeems himself. He's not the Abraham of chapter 12. He's the Abraham now of chapter 14. So what you start to see is Abraham is on that continuum that I keep talking about called sanctification. When he starts, he's not all he's going to be at the end. And Tave and I, we often talk about how real uh, easy it is, right, to look at people in Scripture, to see their sins, and to take some comfort in that because they're sinning. But that's not what the Lord would have us to, 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 uh, to focus on, right? Like Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Abraham had these faults at the beginning, but you don't want to focus on the beginning. You want to focus on the end because all of us are on our same continuum growing and moving forward. So then in chapter 12, you have the ugly side of Abraham. Chapter 13, 14, great Abraham. Chapter 15, the Lord comes, reconfirms his covenant with Abraham. Chapter 17, he tells Abraham to walk before him blamelessly. And what does Abraham do? Abraham lies again. Well, before he lies, he has a child by the maidservant, Hagar. And by the way, that is no lack of faith on, the, on Abraham's part. That was traditional. That's what they did. So when the Lord comes to Abraham in chapter 17 and uh, 15 and tells him he's going to have a son, Abraham decides in chapter 16, okay, this is what I need to do to have the son. So fleshly to be sure, but it's not a lack of faith on the part of Abraham. And then you move to chapter 17 and Abraham is now told by God, walk blameless before me, get, get it together. Now, he's much more mature than Abraham in chapter 12. In chapter 18, he's praying for Lot. 
Actually, he's praying for the Lord to not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because his nephew Lot was there. And the Lord heard his prayer and delivered Lot. But then he falls again. In chapter 20, he goes down to uh, uh, to Abimelech. And he lies to Abimelech about Sarah. And the very same thing that took place with Pharaoh took place with Abimelech. And that's the first place where the truth comes out. In fact, that's the only way we know that Sarah is his half-sister. Because it comes out right there. And then the child is born. The child couldn't be born at chapter 12 or chapter 13 because he wasn't ready. See, the Lord puts you on a continuum, and he has a work for all of us to do. Always. There's no Christian who doesn't have work to do. But the scope of your work will always depend on the progression of your maturity. Always. So Abraham has this son. And here's the Abraham you want to think about. He has this son in chapter 20, and in chapter 21, he's told to kill the son. He's told to sacrifice the son. And the Bible says that he did in his heart kill Isaac because he believed that God would bring him back from the dead. This is Abraham. That's the crowning glory of Abraham. So listen, when you start talking about Father Abraham, that's a proud thing to say. God wants it that way. We're not looking at any snapshot in his life except at the end where God has matured him. He has walked with the Lord. And now the Lord says of Abraham, now I know you fear God. Who else in Scripture is called a friend of God? Nobody but Father Abraham. And it isn't automatic that it would be that way. And that's what we lose sight of often. We think because of the sovereignty of God that it'll always happen. That you're, look at Lot. It didn't happen with him. Abraham gained everything. Lot lost everything. Even his family. Everything. So the encouragement is this. As you look at these Old Testament saints, recognize that the Lord wants us us to see the reality of who they are. They're people just like us. However, we see them growing from an infantile relationship with the Lord to a very mature relationship where the bumps and bruises along the way all create this. Every one of us has had them. We've had those bumps and bruises, but they're not the thing that characterizes us. What characterizes us is that we too are connected to the living God, and he's constantly doing a work so that we might glorify him in that way. Abraham, indeed, is the father of us all, and he is the friend of God. So the next time you hear that song, Father Abraham, think about Abraham that way. That would be an incredible gesture in glorifying God for what he did in the life of Abraham. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.